Welcome to the Books and Bites podcast. Each month, we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to pair with them. I'm Carrie Green, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Melissa Colston and Michael Cunningham. Hello. Hello. So we're doing something a little different on this episode of Books and Bites and highlighting some of our favorite movies and television series that you can stream through JCPL's e-library, including Hoopla Digital, Canopy, and Acorn TV. So we'll pair the videos with some books you might also enjoy, and of course, we'll suggest some bites or beverages. So lots to talk about today. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, Michael and Melissa, what are your thoughts on our streaming video resources? Do you have any favorites? Um, I really like Hoopla. Hoopla Digital, they have a great selection of DV, uh, movies on there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought I saw a lot of overlap with Netflix. So, uh-huh. a lot of stuff that we don't even have. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I was pretty surprised to see that. Mm-hmm. And I thought Canopy has a great selection of yeah, really? I was surprised yeah. looking at Canopy just how how much they have. And Hoopla, I think sometimes I'm like, oh, wow, you have that? Yeah. And also like, oh, wow, you have that? Like it's a <laughs> yeah. wide range of stuff on Hoopla. <laughs> and Canopy <laughs> is like a little bit snootier, right? Like it's yeah. a little higher end, mm-hmm. fancy stuff. Um, but Hoopla has a, a much wider range of like comedies and, um, you know, sillier things. Like I watched on Hoopla, the TV show, The Librarians, because of course I did. (laughs) But I watched like a year or two ago, and it was very fun. Um, But it is very silly, and I don't think I would find that on Canopy. (laughs) No, um, I don't don't think that is on Acorn TV, but there is also some overlap between Hoopla and Acorn TV. So one recommendation I would have is if you find something British on Hoopla, you might want to check first and see if it's available on Acorn TV because with Hoopla, you only have 10 checkouts per month. And with Acorn TV, you can check, you get unlimited viewings um, every time you check it out. You just keep renewing it um, once a week. Right, because the way you access Acorn is you check out like a, a week long access to Acorn and then you just have to to renew that that checkout so mm-hmm. you're checking out the whole resource rather than individual shows or movies right so it's a little different yeah um and another great tip is um with canopy the the resources under canopy kids actually don't count against your 10 checkouts for the month with canopy um so if you have a little one and turn on canopy (laughs) you can turn on canopy and not worry about them watching unboxing videos on youtube and it's not going to count against your snooty (laughs) movies that you might want to watch on canopy i mean you know if they're not into like British dramas, you know, you could go with Acorn, but if if they're not into British (laughs) dramas, you can hop on a canopy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't think there's any kids stuff on (laughs) Acorn TV. Right, so Acorn is exclusively British? I haven't really looked at it There are also some Australian and other foreign um, shows on there, yeah, so it's not exclusively British. I think it is a British... Product. Product. So it's like mostly British stuff, Mm -hmm. mostly British shows and movies. Um, But Hoopla and Canopy are across the board for sure. 
all of these resources you can find on our website at justpublib.org slash elibrary. Um, and if you'd like help getting started, just come see us. Just stop by the Ask a Librarian desk, and any of us will um, help you figure out how to get started. Yeah. And the other great thing about all of these, I think, all of them, I'm pretty sure, they all have apps for smart TVs. So if you have one of those fancy TVs where you can, or like a Roku box or a Apple TV, they all have apps. So it makes it really easy to check things out and view them on your TV rather than having to watch them on a, a computer or a phone or something like that. So this month's episode, I was really excited to sort of have the good excuse to explore Canopy more deeper than I had. You know, I had poked around a little bit so I could help people with it, but I hadn't really looked through the collections and, and seen all that they have. So I ultimately ended up with a watch list that's about a mile long, and I am slowly working my way through it. Um, I ended up watching a few, a few different things, uh, but I picked two that I want to talk about today. The first is called Real Engine, a documentary about how American Indians have been portrayed in film over the years. The documentary is organized chronologically, starting with the prominence of American Indians as both characters and creators in silent film, and ends in the mid-2000s with the rise of indigenous film around the world. A wide range of native film critics, white scholars and actors, and native people were interviewed for the documentary, and their experiences combined with the analysis of film history made for a great overview that didn't feel superficial. I would have appreciated a slightly deeper look at some of the reasons behind the points the film made, like why Westerns went out of fashion in the 1980s. My guess is the Cold War and Soviets became the enemies, but that's just my my idea. <laughs> I would have appreciated you know, some discussion around that or um, one of the things that really interested me about the, the beginning of the movie was why natives featured so prominently in early film and particularly in silent film. Um, but that might just be the nerd in me and I'm the only one that wants those things. But I, I thought it was great and I learned a lot. Uh, I just would have appreciated a little bit more in-depth look at you know, some of the reasons culturally and historically behind what was going on throughout that history. Um, when I finished Real Engine, Canopy immediately suggested another documentary called In Whose Honor that is about Native American mascots and focuses particularly on the former mascot for the University of Illinois, Chief Alinawek, and the graduate student who began the movement protesting racist mascots. The film is only 45 minutes long, so I went ahead and watched it as well. In the end, I'm really glad I did, because not only did this documentary go in-depth in into the imagery of different mascots and the racism that is sometimes hidden underneath claims of honoring heritage, but it also hits on some of the analysis that I wanted from Real Engine. Illinois' mascot was banned after action by the NCAA in 2007, but has not yet been replaced, and the controversy continues to this day. The two documentaries made a great pairing, but you don't need to watch both to understand one or the other. I just thought that in the end, they complemented each other really well. As for what book to pair with these films, I chose There, There by Tommy Orange, which came out last year. 
One of the things that both films talked about was wanting to see American Indians as people, as human beings, rather than as caricatures or tropes. And I think that Orange achieved that with There There. The novel centers on a powwow that will take place in Oakland, California, and follows several characters as they prepare for the event and look back on their own lives. There's a whole bunch of characters to the point that it was almost not easy for me to keep track of all of them. But that variety allows for Orange to explore different aspects of their pasts and of their presence, giving those characters the humanity their real-life counterparts have craved. As for what kind of food to pair with my selections for the month, I turned back to Sean Sherman, who is a, a chef and author that we've talked about before on Books and Bites, and he's an entrepreneur in the Twin Cities area. He recently wrote about 10 essential Native American recipes for the New York Times, and just about all of the recipes on the list look amazing. Um, so I have to interrupt because I actually chose one of those recipes oh, for fabulous. today, too. <laughs> We're, we are of the same mind, Carrie. Uh, well, the one that I am most eager to try is the wild rice with berries and popped rice. Uh, that that did look from? delicious, but um, my the book that I'm focusing on had a specific... Um, location so I kind of we will find out okay well the just the thought of wild rice transports me right back to a trip that we took to visit a friend of mine in Minnesota and I would love to have a taste of that here in Kentucky so it sounds like you really went down a rabbit hole with Kennedy yeah it was really great they have you know kind of like Netflix where they or YouTube where they recommend things based on what you've watched recently it was like oh yeah, that looks interesting. I'll watch that right now. And just immediately went right into the next one. So it's it's pretty, I found that little algorithm to be pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. Not algori- Not all algorithms are so good, but I, I've, that one was pretty right on. Got me to watch something right away. Great. <laughs> Available on Acorn TV, The Detectorists is a British sitcom about Andy and Lance, best friends and metal detectorists, and their colleagues in the Daneberry Metal Detecting Club, also known as the DMDC. When the series opens, Andy is a 43-year-old archaeology student and temp worker who lives with his girlfriend, Becky, a teacher. Lance, also middle-aged, is a recently divorced forklift driver. He's still in love with his with his ex-wife, Maggie, a new age gift shop owner who left Lance for a Pizza Hut manager. The metal detectorists, there's a running gag in the show about them being mistakenly called metal detectors, hunt for treasure on private lands while pretending to be satisfied with the buttons, ring pulls, and belt buckles that they usually uncover. They also attempt to keep members from the rival detecting club the antique researchers off the land they're searching. Though the Detectorists won a 2015 BAFTA for Best Comedy Series, it's not for everyone. Friends of ours recommended it to my husband and me, and when I've since told others about the show, they've either loved it or told me that their parents love it. (laughs) (laughs) For the record, I thought it was just, it was a little too awkward, like awkward humor for me. But it was funny. (laughs) I just had to like, force myself through the awkward what do you mean by awkward i don't know i i have this problem with a lot of shows where it's like 
there are awkward situations and it's supposed to be funny, but I don't think that's funny. I think it's uncomfortable. But that's a that's a me problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, there is definitely a lot of awkward. Um, for me, it doesn't. There have been shows that I just can't watch because, like the original Office. Yeah, like it's just a little <laughs> too British, painful. The original yes. British Office is too painful. But for me, this one doesn't cross the line. It's a little gentler than the original Office. Um, although you may recognize one of the characters, which I'll talk a little <laughs> about a little bit more from the original Office. Um, I should also note that my own mother also loves it. Hi, mom. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect the appeal to a slightly older audience has less to do with the age of the main characters and more to do with the show's pacing, which is a bit slower than what most people are, are used to these days. The show is full of idyllic shots of English fields and huge old trees. If you watch CBS's Sunday Morning, a show that I've loved since high school, although it also skews to an older demographic, and sometimes wish the closing nature scenes would last a little longer than you might enjoy the detectorists. With its quirky characters, somewhat whimsical tone, and clever writing, the show also reminds me a little of Northern Exposure, one of my favorite TV series of all time. And you're getting some, I'm getting some nods from- We're with you, we're <laughs> from with Melissa you. From Melissa and Michael here. The entire cast is strong, but the actors who play Andy and Lance are especially so, embodying their slightly pathetic, slightly cocky, slightly awkward, <laughs> slightly lonely and scared characters with humor and empathy. Mackenzie Crook writes and directs the show and plays Andy. You might remember him as Gareth from the original British The Office. He's also acted in The Pirates of the Caribbean and Game of Thrones. Toby Jones plays Lance. You may have seen him in The Hunger Games or heard his voice as Dobby in the Harry Potter movies. Huh. Yeah, I didn't I know, know that either. <laughs> Another thing I really love about the show is how complete the story arc feels. There are just three seasons in the series, and, and I should also add that that's kind of true with a lot of British series. They're not really as long as American ones. Um, and while each season has its own storylines, the characters and plot develop throughout all three in really satisfying ways. While part of me wishes there were more episodes to watch, I'm also perfectly happy to rewatch a series that is so well made and to delight in the jokes that I didn't catch the first time around. Thanks to the library's subscription to Acorn TV, I can. While the detectorists drink plenty of pints of bitter and cups of tea over the course of the series, some of my favorite scenes are when Sheila, the kooky wife of the DMDC president, offers lemonade to the other club members. Spoiler alert, it's physical comedy at its best. Since it's not really the time of year for lemonade, I suggest trying a snowball cocktail, the drink Sheila requests at the local pub when they don't serve pina coladas. Apparently, the snowball is a classic holiday drink in the UK. It's made with the Dutch liqueur Advocaat, a mixture of egg yolks, sugar, brandy, and vanilla, plus some, li plus some lime juice and fizzy lemon soda. I that, haven't... that sounds complicated. Um, well, it's not really because the Advocaat has everything together. So you, oh, can, okay. Okay. you can make it on your own if you want to, but you can just buy this liqueur and it already has 
the egg yolks and brandy and sugar. Fascinating. Mm. All mixed together. And apparently <laughs> they do sell it in British pubs, like already in made, like in a can, <laughs> which I guess they do gin and tonics that way too over yeah. there. I think they do whiskey and coke that way too. The whole pre-made cocktail in a can thing—that's a—that's a whole thing over there. <laughs> I don't know about the egg yolks. <laughs> well, I'm sure they're pasteurized. <laughs> it still kind of weirds yeah. me out. <laughs> I'd have to try it. Yeah, I haven't tried. I haven't had the chance to try it yet, but. To me, it sounds a lot more appealing than eggnog, so I, I think I may give it a That's try. That's fair. Um, and we'll link to the recipe on our blog. Even though I read my fair share of books by comic British authors, I found it really difficult to find one that matched the witty yet bittersweet tone of the detectorists. Although it's written by and about an American, the main character in Less by Andrew Sean Greer reminds me a little of Toby and Lance. Arthur Less is a lonely writer who doesn't quite live up to his own expectations, but is endearing nevertheless. If you'd like to find out more about this book, listen to Can't Miss Summer Reads, episode 29 of the podcast. If you're attracted to the quirky characters in an English village aspect of the Detectorists, try the Man at the Helm series of novels by Nina Stibbe. These three satirical novels are set in a 1970s English village, where Lizzie Vogel has moved with her mother and siblings after her mother's divorce. Lizzie is 10 when the series opens, and though she is wise beyond her years, part of the fun of the novels comes from knowing more than Lizzie does and from seeing her come of age. Finally, if you're more into the detectorist's focus on nature and archaeology, read Surfacing by Scottish poet and essayist Kathleen Jamie. This lyrical, reflective book of essays combines memoir, travel, and cultural and natural history. Like Andy, Jamie studied archaeology in college, and though she's still an amateur, she volunteers on digs. The book's longest essays are about two separate digs. In the Alaskan village of Quinnahawk, where most of the residents are members of the Yupik tribe, Researchers work to uncover a 500-year-old village before rising seas and a thawing permafrost erase it. And on the Scottish island of Orkney, researchers attempt to save artifacts from the links of Notland, a Neolithic and Bronze Age settlement revealed after the dunes covering them began to erode. While Jamie discusses some of the interesting archeological finds, her focus is on the shifting landscape and on the people on the teams of archeologists, on the locals, and on the historic peoples. Throughout, she also meditates on time. Quote, being on site often left me freighted with thoughts about time, how it seems to expand and contract, she writes. I kept having to remind myself of the ages that passed during what we call the Neolithic or the Bronze Age, how those people's days were as long and vital as ours, unquote. As in The Detectorists, Jamie's essays force you to slow down and notice the details, to be in the moment. There's a quietness to them that is similar to the show. But where the DMDC members, even aspiring archaeologist Andy, are focused on finding treasures, surfacing describes the added urgency of preserving artifacts before climate change destroys them. As one of the lead archaeologists at the Links of Notland tells Jamie, quote, 
The archaeology we are digging has been buried for 5,000 years, and it has never been exposed like this in all that time. What's happening is significant, really, to, well, to archaeology, but also us, the human race, unquote. In the essay on Quinnahawk, Jamie talks about the rich Yupik food culture of fishing, hunting, and gathering berries, and enjoys several indigenous dishes, including salmon broth and agutak, or, Chris, or Eskimo ice cream. Although not specific to the Yupik tribe, the recipe salmon with crushed blackberries and seaweed <laughs> combines several of that cuisine's flavor, flavors and is on my list of dishes to try. It was recently featured in that same New York Times article, Sean Sherman's 10 Essential Native American Recipes, which we'll link to twice on our blog. <laughs> Perusing Canopy's collection of films from A24, personally one of my favorite film studios, I came across the film Hereditary. I knew how to watch it after all the buzz it got after it came out in 2018. Also, on a quick side note, if you're not familiar with the studio A24, you need to be. They've been putting out some of the best films of recent years, like Moonlight, which won the Academy Award for Best Picture in 2017, Room, Eighth Grade, Lady Bird, The Wit, and this year's Midsummer and The Lighthouse. So Hereditary is a psychological horror film. It was written and directed by Ari Aster and stars Tony Collette, Gabriel Byrne, Alex Wolfe, Millie Shapiro, and Anne Dowd. This film is hard to describe without giving too much away. The film begins with Annie, played by Tony Collette, a miniature artist, and her family Steve, her husband, and her two children, Peter and Charlie, preparing for her mother's funeral. Her and her mother had a very strained relationship. She was a highly secretive person and emotionally abusive. Her mother also had a highly unusual relationship with Annie's quirky 13-year-old daughter, Charlie, insisting on personally nursing her. Very weird. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. After the funeral, Annie starts digging through her mother's belongings, wanting to know who her mother really was. This eventually leads her to reaching out to one of her mother's friends after a tragedy strikes her family. All I can really say about the ending without giving anything away is that it is absolutely gut-wrenching and shocking. I read several reviews on this film that talked about how Hereditary was going to be our generation's exorcist, that it was the most terrifying film to come out in recent memory, and that it stood among the greatest horror films ever. I went into the film preparing myself to be let down somewhat with the amount of hype surrounding it. I was not let down in the least. It lives up to all, to all the buzz, which is remarkable since this is Astor's directorial debut. Hereditary is a complex and layered film, much more than just blood and viscera. It takes a long look at coming to terms with what we inherit from our family, like mental illness. It examines a family that is slowly unraveling and trying to stave off its utter collapse. Toni Collette's performance as Annie is especially noteworthy. She should have been at least nominated for an Oscar for her performance. This movie is absolutely terrifying, disturbing, haunting. It's one of those films that stays with you long after the credits roll. You're really selling it. <laughs> Some people love this. If you've seen Astor's other film, Mids Midsummer, that came out this past summer, or The Witch, I would highly recommend you watch this ASAP. So this is probably not for 
You too. <laughs> you're, you're selling it as uh, one to avoid for me. Yes, yes. <laughs> but I can understand that some people are into that. Yeah, if you yeah. don't like horror, stay away. Okay, yeah. That good, doesn't good sound enough. like I could handle yeah. it. But I do love Moonlight and Lady Bird. I mean, those are two of my favorite recent films. But maybe no, I want to yeah. avoid the, uh, the horror. Yeah, this one is particularly <laughs> we'll pass on whoa. it thanks thanks for uh watching it for us yeah i watch a lot of horror and even i was like whoa time, yeah. with it with hereditary being an intense film and filmed on location in utah i chose to pair it with a utah whiskey campfire from the high west distillery this whiskey is a little different it's a blend of scotch bourbon and rye I noticed notes of floral, fruit, and spice on the nose, the notes of honey, vanilla, cherry, cinnamon, and a hint of smoke during the taste. I usually stick to bourbon most of the time, but this unusual whiskey was quite good. Perfect for a cold night. Mm, that sounds very nice. Yeah. And a good choice if you don't want to mix up a snowball. Yeah. <laughs> and are afraid of the uh, egg yolks. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, I'll just take the whiskey. <laughs> So I paired Hereditary with a novel, Head Full of Ghosts, by Paul Tremblay. Um, you might remember earlier I did uh, The Cabinet in the World by Paul Tremblay earlier this year. Uh, the novel begins with Mary Barrett returning to her childhood home in Beverly, Massachusetts, to be interviewed by an author. Mary is finally going to tell her side of the story of the events surrounding her 14-year-old sister, Marjorie, that transpired in the house 15 years ago when Mary was 8 years old. So the Barrett family is struggling to make ends meet. Mary's father is out of work, leaving Mary's mother as a sole breadwinner. Even though there's a gap in, the, in their ages, Mary and Marjorie are quite close. They spend their evenings making up modest stories about rich and scary characters, like Huckle the Cat, and writing them down in the back of the book. Then something changes in Marjorie. She starts acting out in bizarre ways. Instead of innocent stories, she starts telling Mary macabre stories instead, scaring her badly. She talks to herself, arranges her posters into a disturbing collage that she claims she didn't do, creeps into Mary's room at night trying to scare her. This finally leads to her, her mother to start taking her to see a therapist. After a few visits, not much seems to change. After a particularly scary episode, her father, a recent, a recent born-again Catholic, takes her to see a priest. This priest convinces Mary's father that Marjor Marjorie needs an exorcism. After tense arguments, Mary's mother grudgingly agrees to let a television crew come into their house to film Marjorie's exorcism, a reality TV show called The Possession, because they desperately need the money. This all leads to a shocking tragedy that causes the show to abruptly end after six episodes. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. This novel raises a lot of questions. You're dealing with an unreliable narrator and quite a bit of ambiguity. You're trying to figure out who's responsible for what. Is Marjorie suffering from mental illness or is she really possessed? It leaves a reader trying to figure out the facts of, of the events that have morphed and changed every time the story's been told, especially when it comes to social media and the inter internet. Placed throughout the novel are blog posts from a Karen Bursett that attempts to dissect each episode of The Possession, attempting to piece together the truth through a pop culture lens. So this, this is a really smart literary horror novel. A lot like Hereditary, this novel tells a complex and layered story. It deals with a family that's slowly fracturing, a family member that may be suffering per, from a possible mental illness, and it has an equally shocking ending. 
Throughout the novel, the Bear family eats quite a bit of pasta, so I decided to pair this novel with one of my favorite cold weather dishes, baked spaghetti. I found a recipe on delish.com that sounded good and seemed pretty straightforward to make. The recipe calls for ground beef, mozzarella, Parmesan cheese, basil, minced garlic, and yellow onion. I did substitute ground buffalo for the ground beef. It was really good. I might have to add it to the rotation of recipes at home. I like the substitution of the buffalo. Did you just have that on hand? No. You went out and bought that on purpose? Yep. All right. I did. Going the extra mile for books well, and bites. Yeah. Back from uh, when I, my days at Whole Foods, I got a, uh, yeah, I love cooking with buffalo. I was just going <laughs> to say, how did you get into cooking with, and where do you find it? But now yeah, apparently I know a, both. You get it at Whole Foods. <laughs> it is somewhat expensive now from what it used to be. Mm-hmm. It used to be pretty on par with ground beef, but now it's pretty astronomical. Now. Because people are finding out about the benefits of yes. cooking with it? Yeah. And, but yeah. I really, I really like cooking with it. It's very less. It's not as, not as greasy as beef. Mm-hmm. Cool. And got a little sweeter flavor mm-hmm. than ground beef. But yeah, try yeah. it. Yeah, you heard it here. <laughs> <laughs> so as the year comes to a close, we start looking towards 2020. And one of the things that we've talked about on Books and Bites before is how fun it is to do a reading challenge to kind of help you get yourself out of your normal reading patterns and explore all the different books that are out there. So what we decided is to to have a Books and Bites reading challenge for 2020. And we've got a list of 15 challenges you have to complete 12 to be eligible for one of the prizes. And we'll have the forms available for pickup at the library starting in January. It will be for the whole year, so we won't be collecting them again until December, but uh, on Books and Bites, the podcast and and the in-person program, we'll be talking about different books that you can read to satisfy the different challenges. And we're really excited to, to see how it goes, to see how JCPL challenges themselves. Yeah, and how we challenge ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, this is gonna be, this is gonna be fun. Thanks for listening to the Books and Bites podcast. We produce this podcast in the recording studio at the Jessamine County Public Library. For links to the books and recipes we talked about today, or to sign up for our Books and Bites newsletter, visit our website at jesspublib.org forward slash books hyphen bites. Our theme song is The Breakers by Scott Whitten from his album In Close Quarters with the Enemy. You can find out more about Scott and his music on his website, adoreforadesk.com.